from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Here now this familiar story from the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing fire. And so the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound, into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly, he said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? And they answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command 
and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rob. Our second text is from the Epistle of James. Uh, it's the fourth chapter, verses 13 through 17. I want us to pay particular attention to verse 17 as it's part of uh, the core content that drives the sermon this morning. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, these ancient texts afresh for us so that our reflection upon them may be the word we need to hear, the word that you would like to speak to us, that comforts us, that challenges us, but most assuredly forms us to be more and more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're uh, in week two of our sermon series entitled Share the Dream. It's based off of a curriculum published not too long ago by Harper Collins. And in this series, what we're trying to do is elevate and activate six theological principles that rooted the life and ministry of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Those principles are love, conscience, justice, freedom, perseverance, and hope. If you missed the series opener on love, you can access that sermon and all previous sermons through our homepage, firstpresatl.org. In addition, tonight we kick off our conversation group around these six principles. Uh, tonight's gathering will take place at 5.30, 5.30 to 7.30. A light dinner is provided for $5. Rob Sparks will be facilitating that conversation. It will take place in the orchestra room, uh, and you're invited to participate in that conversation. Well, as we're in week two of the sermon series, um, our attention this morning focuses on the principle of conscience, the theological principle of conscience. Dr. King's final Sunday sermon was preached just a few days before he was assassinated. It was actually Palm Sunday, March 31st, 1968. He was invited to preach at the Washington National Cathedral in D.C. And his sermon title for that day was actually a title that he used for a lot of his talks and a lot of his sermons, uh, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. And in that sermon, he offered these words. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? 
Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because one's conscience tells them that is right. Dr. King's appeal to the individual conscience as well as the collective conscience of our nation was a dominant feature within his rhetoric. Conscience asks the question, is this right? Is this right? And Scripture tells us, and I'm referencing the text that I read for us from the book of James, that anyone who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. But how does one actually know what is right and what is good? How does one know what is noble or virtuous? Perhaps more profoundly, how can an individual trust their conscience to lead them to do the right thing? How can we trust our conscience to lead us to make the right decision? How can we know for sure that our conscience is aligned with the will of God. In the English language, the word conscience is the combination of two Latin words, con, which means with, and the verb scire, which means to know. Uh, conscience then literally means with knowledge or having knowledge, and when we use conscience uh, in our nomenclature, it means that we possess or are talking about that inner moral knowledge that we have, the inner moral and ethical knowledge of right and wrong. Uh, Alberto Giobellini is an ethicist at the University of Oxford, and he suggests that conscience is subjective and plural. That conscience is subjective and plural. Well, what does that mean? It means the most obvious thing, that there is more than one conscience. There's more than one conscience. There's no moral matrix or ethical server that we're all plugged into, that we're all connected to. No. There is a plurality of conscience and a subjectivity of conscience residing in every individual person. Some of you may have seen this, this past week uh, that Pope Francis spoke in a very precise way against the practice of surrogacy. Some of you saw his declaration on this. In fact, he called for a worldwide ban on the practice. This is part of what he said. He said, I deem deplorable the practice of so-called surrogate motherhood, which represents a grave violation of the dignity of the woman and the child based on the exploitation of situations of the mother's material needs. When I read that quote in the story published by the Times, I, I immediately thought of one of my closest friends who also happens to be a Presbyterian minister. He and his wife have three children via surrogacy. In her mid-20s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And because the drug reg regimen to treat her cancer was so severe, she was advised to freeze embryos as the prospect of her carrying a child to term would be both dangerous and ill-advised. And so they prayed, and they enlisted the community and their friends to pray. Katie and I were those counted among those prayer warriors. 
And they kept coming, this couple, our friends, kept coming to the same conclusion, that God was calling them to be biological parents. That God was calling them to be biological parents. Three children later, all born through surrogacy, they are wonderful, God-fearing parents with three beautiful and amazing children. You see, one person's conscience calls it deplorable, and another person's conscience calls it divine. Because conscience is subjective and plural. I mean, think about the story we heard read from the book of Daniel that Rob uh, read for us this morning, this famous story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to worship the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, trusting that their lives were in God's hands as they made that decision, born from conscience. It was their conscience that led them to refuse the king's mandate, even in the face of certain death. I remember back in college, I was in a philosophy class with one of my favorite professors during my university years, Dr. Peter Janko. I went to Eastern University. It's an evangelical school that was focused on social justice as well. Uh, and Dr. Janko was a professing Christian, and many of the students, my peers, had grown up in evangelical Christian community. Uh, Dr. Jenko, again, as a professing Christian, was reflecting on this story in one of his classes when he said something that shocked us all. He said, if a narcissistic madman like Nebuchadnezzar put me in the same predicament as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I would have actually bowed down and worshipped the idol. This shocked mostly most of the students who had come from these evangelical, more conservative uh, Christian communities where the highest principle was martyrdom, was sacrifice, was never turning your back on declaring Christ as Lord. But he went on to say, I'm not going to give up my life to defy a deranged despot. He said, God knows my heart. God knows that I love God. What is more... When my life is spared, I can continue to live into the moral obligations and the moral joys of being a husband and a father, a professor, and a leader in my church. All of those, he reminded us, were divine calls from God. And he said, I'm not going to neglect that call to prove a point to a madman. What Dr. Jenko was trying to communicate is that where one person's conscience might lead them to refuse to bow down and worship an idol, another person's conscience might lead them to acquiesce in deference to the responsibilities that God has already placed on their life. You see, conscience is subjective and plural. Not only that, conscience is also morally neutral. Uh, in other words, just because your conscience tells you something is right doesn't by default make it right. Just because your conscience tells you that something's wrong doesn't by default mean that it is wrong. Our conscience is not infallible. 
Our conscience is not inerrant. Our conscience is both corruptible and corrupted by sin. Just because your conscience told you to storm the Capitol doesn't make it right. And just because your conscience told you to destroy private and public property in the name of your cause doesn't make it right. Just because you say, I had to stay true to my conscience, doesn't mean that by default it was just or righteous or moral. When Joseph found out that his bride-to-be was pregnant with Jesus, it was his conscience that told him to divorce Mary and dismiss her quietly. It was conscience that motivated the priest and the Levite to pass on the other side and not to attend to the man who was left for dead, a man who would eventually be helped by a conscientious and good Samaritan. The Apostle Paul's persecution of Christians prior to his conversion was motivated by conscience. Again, just because an idea or act originates in our conscience does not automatically make it right or moral. As we come to the the home stretch of this sermon, I'd I'd like to return to uh, Dr. King's words when he said, conscience asks the question, is this right? Conscience asks the question, is this right? As I asked earlier, however, how do we know that something is right? How do we know that our conscience knows or that our conscience is producing the moral good? How do we know that our conscience is aligned and in tune with the will of God? The answer to that question, unfortunately, because of the subjective, plural, and morally neutral nature of the conscience, and because of sin, the answer is that we cannot know with absolute certainty that we are on the side of God's will, on the side of God's righteousness. We still ask the question. The question is still relevant today. Is this right? But we also have to ask, as followers of Jesus Christ and friends of God, how do we cultivate a mature, well-formed conscience that will see more clearly the righteousness of God? How do we cultivate a mature, well-formed conscience that knows and seeks after the right and the good of God? One of the guiding principles of our tradition when I say our tradition, I'm talking about the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, is our stalwart belief that God and God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Simply stated, our conscience is not God. Our conscience is not God. Our conscience recognizes, first and foremost, the Lordship of Christ and that our conscience should align itself in obedience and service to Him. Our conscience should be shaped by the Word of God in all three of its forms. The Word of God made flesh in and as Jesus Christ. The Word of God read in the Old and the New Testament and the Word of God proclaimed in the proclamation and teaching of the church. The conscience cannot be aligned with the will of God without first acknowledging that God and God alone is the Lord of the conscience. So if you've made an idol of your conscience, if you worship your conscience and you expect others to worship your conscience, I'd encourage you to tear that idol down because your conscience and my conscience is not God. 
Our quest toward a mature, well-formed Christian conscience begins with acknowledging that God is the Lord of the conscience. It continues then in the regular and routine practice of self-examination, which leaves room for the Holy Spirit to work on us. Self-examination in the Christian life is made manifest in the practice of prayerful introspection and reflection and evaluating one's thoughts and one's actions and one's theology and one's ethics and one's spiritual condition in light of the Word of God, which is our standard. It involves assessing our relationship with God. How are we doing, God? And it repents from sins. It strives for spiritual maturity and holiness. This practice is rooted in various biblical passages like Lamentations 3. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you're living in the faith. Test yourselves. 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 Peter 2. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation. How do we cultivate a mature, well-formed Christian conscience? First, we profess that our conscience is not God. Christ is the Lord of the conscience. Second, it continues in regular and routine self-examination that leaves room for the Spirit to form and reform our conscience. Add to that one more thing, and I'll finish with this. It's my conviction, uh, born from experience and an observation, that when it comes to the conscience, a healthy Christian community will hold these two values in tension. First, they will hold the value of communal standards that set the expectations for our theological and ethical life. And second, also holding intention, the value of dissent and the value of individual liberty and freedom of conscience under the lordship of Christ. This means that within a healthy Christian community, within a healthy Christian community, you can be thrown out as a heretic for not meeting the theological or ethical standards that we have collectively agreed upon. While at the same time, as theologian Margot Hals put it, a person is free to dissent and passively submit to those expectations or peaceably withdraw from the community. I think it is so important to remember that theological and ethical expectations that we have agreed upon within the community of faith more often than not, began with an individual or a small group of people dissenting. Dissenting. And to prove this point, all you have to do is look to Jesus. In his religious community, the expectations and the standards were to avoid contact with the infirmed, to not work on the Sabbath, to exclude the religious and ethnic other, to employ violence to defeat one's enemy, to make the world right. But Jesus dissented in an ethical way. He touches the infirmed. He heals on the Sabbath. He welcomes sinners and includes the other. And he employs nonviolence and enemy love to make the world right. And his descent became our standard. His descent became our standard. And that is precisely why 
a healthy Christian community seeking to cultivate mature, well-formed Christian conscience must hold in tension the collective conscience of the community under the Lordship of Christ, hold it in tension with the liberty to ethically dissent under that same Lordship. How do we cultivate a well-formed Christian conscience? First, we profess that our conscience is not God, that Christ is Lord of the conscience. Second, it continues in regular and routine self-examination that leaves room for the spirit to form and reform our conscience. How are we doing with God? And finally, it can only mature, I believe, in a healthy Christian community that recognizes that the conscience is individual, subjective, plural, morally neutral, and infected by sin even as it seeks to maintain our collective and communal theological and ethical expectations to which we're all going to be held to account, while at the same time leaving room for ethical dissent, because conscientious dissent is what often gives rise to the theological and ethical standards that we cherish. So may we be that type of community. May we do our part and helping to form, by God's grace, mature and well-formed conscience, not just for our own sake, not just for the sake of the church, but for the sake of Christ's gospel and for the world he loves. Amen.